Hey, Phantomaniacs, and welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I am your host, Phantom Troublemaker, and I have just seen Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles out of the shadows in the movie theater. Opening night, or I guess pre-opening night, I don't know how they qualify the Thursday night uh, showings, but whatever the case, if you liked the first one... You're going to love this one. Uh, I won't say more because if you want the full review, you're going to have to go to Phantom Troublemaker. I'm sorry. I, man, I cannot get that uh, site name right. I just feel like my name should come first. It's patreon.com slash phantom troublemaker. Uh, my review will be up there for my patrons. And by my patrons, I mean those of you who are contributing $5 or more a month to my Patreon uh, you can go there, check it out, see the rewards. I am actually boxing up maze rewards as we speak, and it, we're into June now. So get on there, check it out, see if you want to support NeedlessThingsSite.com. Uh, the various things I do, going to conventions or whatever, I, I say that as though I'm going to more than one convention this year, which I am not, but uh, it's... Because I've got to sort of sort things out and figure out where I can put my resources. Uh, as far as May goes, there were a lot of options, and I put all of my convention eggs in the wrong basket, so to speak. So nothing happened there, but I promise next year I will be doing more, seeing more, and showing more uh, around the convention circuit. But this year, as you all know, Dragon Con is my home base and once again, we will be presenting the Dirty Dirty Con Con Game Game Show Show. Lots of big news about that. And you know what? I'll go ahead and drop it now. The the patrons already know because they get the early scoop on everything. But you loyal listeners uh, deserve to hear it now. We will be in a ballroom. I cannot disclose the location of said ballroom yet. But the Dirty Dirty Con Con Game Game Show Show will be in a ballroom this year. Not a track room. It's going to be a big deal. We're making plans. We're figuring out how we can take advantage of this space. We're figuring out uh, the challenges that this space is going to present because it's going to take a whole lot more effort to put the show on in a ballroom than to... Well, not necessarily more effort. It's going to take more personnel. It's going to take more planning. And there aren't going to be any excuses. Now, granted, if we have audio problems again, there's only so much control I have over that. But... There will be no, well, we're in a track room, so what do you want? We finally got what we wanted, so we're going to deliver, and we feel the pressure to deliver, and we're going to make it happen. It's going to be absolutely incredible, and I guarantee if you get in, and not everybody will, but I guarantee if you get in, it will be the best thing you see at Dragon Con. That is my personal guarantee to you. Uh, but I am involved in another big event at Dragon Con, and that is Dragon Con Wrestling. As most of you know at this point, I am the voice of Dragon Con Wrestling. This was made official uh, last year, although this is this will be the third year that I have been calling the matches for DCW, the greatest wrestling event of the year. 
Uh, I've often said if I had to choose between attending DCW and watching WrestleMania, I would choose DCW. It is that much more important to me. It's that much more exciting. It's that much more thrilling. DCW is now the official kickoff for Dragon Con. What that means is that we are now Thursday night instead of Friday. So spread the word, Phantomaniacs. Spread the word, DCW Hooligans. DCW is kicking off Dragon Con Thursday night, I believe at 7 p.m., same time as always, in the Hyatt Centennial Ballroom, same place as always, but just be aware that we are now the big bang, as it were, that will explode into Dragon Con-y goodness. It's an honor to have been chosen as kind of the big kickoff event, and we're going to bring it harder than we've ever brought it before in 2016. So that's two huge events that I'm involved with at Dragon Con that I'm very proud of, I'm very excited about, lots of stuff going on. So to get back to my original point, though, go to patreon.com slash phantom troublemaker where you'll get exclusive stuff that I don't put up anywhere else, not here, not Facebook, not Instagram. Uh, well, eventually I'll probably mention it on the podcast, but you'll get it first over there. And uh, my review for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows will be up there uh, later this evening, since this podcast will post Friday morning. My review of X-Men Apocalypse is already over there. So if you want to get in on that one, check it out. Uh, I, I will say this, I enjoyed it a lot more than I enjoyed the last one. I, I can say that about both of those movies, although varying degrees of success in both cases overall. So, what else is happening in the world, Phantomaniacs? I, not a whole lot to report. I, I laid down a pretty big intro last time. Uh, I also record exclusive podcasts for the Patreon page where I kind of go into detail about the workings of Phantom Troublemaker's life. So there's not a whole lot to discuss right now. Everything's pretty cool. Uh, I'm kind of cruising along in my nerd space, trying to get everything together. It's June, which means there's a big summer ahead. Uh, some good friends of mine are getting married, so I'm not going to be at Heroes Con this year. Hopefully we'll get back up there next year. It's going to depend on what we can work out family-wise, what we can work out entertainment-wise. I would love to bring the game show up. Uh, I know they're not in a hotel, so they don't have evening programming, but I think it would be kind of a hit to uh, do the game show maybe in a nearby club or something along those lines, right? That'd be pretty cool. It'd be something for everybody to get out and do in the evening instead of just hanging out in the lobby of the hotel. Not that there's anything wrong with that. So... I'm really at a gestation point where I'm kind of just putting things together, figuring out plans, a couple other projects that may or may not come together because I'm not fooling myself. I'm very busy. Even if I took the website out of the equation, the podcast out of the equation, I'm still busy. I've got a family. I've got a job that demand puts a lot of demands on my time and energy. So I've got to balance myself and figure out what I'm capable of and what's realistic for me to do. One thing that I'm always surprised by is how realistic it is for me to reach out to people that I consider to be pinnacles of the entertainment world and actually get a response. As I've said before, 99 times out of 100, I get zero response. I have put, uh, you guys don't know how hard I work 
trying to make contact with people to come on the show. Because I like doing the roundtable shows, but my my passion is interviews. I love talking to new people and learning things and hearing stories. I, I absolutely love that. And I'm just limited by, I guess, my hype level or my, my level of recognition. Uh, I missed out on an opportunity recently because I'm not more well-known than I am. Uh, and and it, it definitely bummed me out, but it's just what happens, you know. You just keep keep working. The more people you interview, the more known you get, uh, hopefully. And, you know, one of these days I'll be at a point where I can, you know, people will actually tell me no instead of just ignoring my email. That's the dream. That's the phantom dream is if I can get to the point where I actually get no's, uh, I will be delighted. But somebody who not only responded but did not say no is john semper jr now if you don't know he was the showrunner for spider-man the animated series the 90s spider-man cartoon that many of our listeners probably grew up with as their main reference point for spider-man uh the show started when i was out of high school but i was definitely on board because i was i was heavy into collecting toy business stuff at the time Toy Biz was producing the toy line that corresponded with Spider-Man the Animated Series. And uh, I was big into it because, just like X-Men the Animated Series, that show was presenting the stories I wanted to see. Now, it wasn't adapting comic book stories quite as directly, which is a very interesting point that uh, Mr. Semper brought up. But John Semper Jr. on the show today talking to me not only about spider-man the animated series but also about his uh war of the rocket men project which reunites the cast of spider-man the animated series to bring you a new animated uh project about the rocket men and i just encourage you to just google war of the rocket men check out this guy's pitch video it's awesome uh, I'm really excited about this pro- uh, project. And the thing is, he is just raising funds to put together some animation so he can shop it around. This isn't even like we're going to fund the project with this. This is just we need funds so we can put together uh, basically a, a reel to go show people so we can get this thing done. So it's exciting. It's very cool. And after you hear John Semper Jr. talk, you're going to be excited about this thing because he's very cool. He's a great guy. He's worked on so much of the animation that's been part of the history of my life that I didn't even realize going into the interview. So it's a great time. You guys are going to dig it. And I'm just thrilled that uh, he, he took the time out to, to talk to me and, and that you guys get to hear it. So we're going to play a little music, and then we're going to go right into my interview with John Semper Jr. sitting down today with someone who is quite frankly a bit of a legend in the animation business and who had a massive impact certainly on my life but I think probably some of our listeners that are maybe around 10 or so years younger than me uh, you guys grew up 
with uh, Spider-Man the Animated Series. This was your exposure to Spider-Man and, you know, in talking to you guys over the years, this is important to all of us as an entry point for Spider-Man and a high watermark for Spider-Man and animation. And today I am talking to John Semper Jr., who was essentially, would you say showrunner on the cartoon? I would say showrunner. I was the showrunner, absolutely. And, uh, man, thank you so much for coming on the show. I can't tell you how much uh, this means to have you here. And I'm excited to talk not just about Spider-Man, but about a project you're working on now, and that is War of the Rocket Men, which I want to dip into a little bit right now and get into more detail later. But just real okay. quick, uh, tell us where we can check out War of the Rocket Men and like the what, what are you trying to accomplish with it? Well, um, the first thing that I'm trying to accomplish with War of the Rocket Men is to put myself and my uh, cast of Spider-Man, the animated series, back to work together. Um, we all work, so it's not about simply working, but it's about having the opportunity for all of us to get together again, as we did 20 years ago. We've all remained friends. I'm very proud to say that... Uh, uh, I've remained close friends with all of these people, including Ed Asner, who played uh, J. Jonah Jameson. He was the voice of J. Jonah. Um, but uh, Chris Barnes, the voice of Spider-Man, Saratoga Valentine, Mary Jane Watson, Gary Imhoff, who was uh, Harry Osborne, the Green Goblin, Patrick Labiorto, who was Flash Thompson, Rodney Salisbury, who was J. Robbie Robertson, um, and uh, not J. Robbie, but Robbie Robertson, uh, and... Um, Oh, good grief. Who else? I know I'm missing at least. Oh, Jennifer Hale, who was Felicia Hardy, the black cat. We've all remained good friends. And um, 20 years ago when uh, we did this, uh, for a number of them uh, or for a couple of them, it was their first gig. I know that that was the, the case with Jennifer. It was her very first professional job. And she, of course, has had a really long and prolific career. Um, but we had a wonderful time. And um, I organized a reunion about a year ago, a little over a year ago, and we all kind of looked at one another afterwards and said, well, we should do something again. You know, this was, we, we really enjoy being in the same room with one another. And, uh, and since I think up new ideas uh, for a living, I decided that I would think up an idea for us all to work on together, and that's War of the Rocket Men, which, very briefly, is based on the Loosely based, uh, really inspired by the old Rocket Man character of the Republic serials. A lot sure, of people sure. know him. Yeah, know him as Commando Cody. Um, but before that, he was just generically the Rocket Man. Uh, I've created a new show that we can talk about later because I know you want to get the Spider Man. But it's it's based <laughs> around that character. Um, we are crowdfunding a presentation. I'm going to create a presentation, a very high quality presentation that I will take around to networks and places like Amazon and Netflix and places like that and see if I can get it funded as a real series. Um, so I wasn't going to try to get it funded through crowdfunding to make the actual pilot, but I'm creating a presentation. Uh, and I've got some amazing artists, we'll talk about that, who are going to be involved. Anyway, uh, the crowdfunding campaign, you can reach it by going to www.waroftherocketmen.com. Dot com. That's all one word, waroftherocketmen.com. Um, the actual crowdfunding website is a little more complicated address. In fact, 
if you don't mind listening to me click a little bit, I'm going to bring it up on my computer here very quickly. Oh, no, by all means, go ahead. And while you're doing that, I'll just say, <laughs> I, I, you know, if the listeners are anything like me, we check out crowdfunding stuff, and you usually watch the first couple minutes of the video to get an idea of, oh, am I interested in this, am I not? Because the videos are not always great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've got an 11 and a half minute video and I, I literally couldn't turn it off. It's really, <laughs> you, you have, you give a great presentation. Uh, you have some beautiful visuals accompanying you. Like I, I actually was sitting there enjoying the video like, oh, I'm, I'm running up against interview time. I need to, <laughs> I need to wrap this thing up. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Uh, we worked very hard on it and, and I wanted it to be entertaining and I took a bit of a risk making it a long video because they recommend that you do a video of only a couple of minutes right. uh, max. But I, I thought that it would be of interest to uh, especially fans of Spider-Man the Animated Series. So if you're a fan of Spider-Man the Animated Series, I know that something called War of the Rocket Men might not turn you on by its title. But believe me, there's plenty there that you're going to be very excited about, not the least of which is the cast. Uh, they're all the, all the familiar faces. Let me give you that uh, address for, to go directly to the um, campaign it's igg.me forward slash at forward slash war of the rocket men. So that's igg.me slash uh, at slash war of the rocket men. Um, but the simpler one is to simply go to um, uh, com. So there you go. Yeah, and that and and even easier. I I think I don't think I even hit a link. Uh, I think I just Googled War of the Rocket Men and, and it was, there were a couple of different options right there. So it's, it's, pre, it's easy Great. to find either way. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And, and I'll say, I mean, the Rocket Men, even if you don't specifically know the serials, I mean, they, they have an iconic look. We, if, if you're part of genre, you know, pop culture, you know that look and it got me excited just seeing that as part of the presentation. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah. On to. Uh, you and how you got to the point of being the showrunner on Spider-Man the Animated Series because I would imagine you don't fill out a job application and hand it into Marvel and they say, <laughs> here here you go, sir. Good luck. Uh, and, and you mentioned, one of the things you mentioned uh, in that video is all of the shows that you worked on, which uh, I, I'm actually going to be 40 tomorrow to give you an idea of of where your work fell in my life. Uh, so I was graduating high school when Spider-Man the Animated Series hit, but I was still super deep into you know comic books and cartoons and everything. I, I never I never had an out period, if you will. Uh, but a lot of your earlier work hit me in my nostalgia sweet spot. Uh, so where did you get your start in animation? Well, I was. Um Let's see where to begin. Uh, when I first, uh, I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts. When I first came out to Southern California, um, I started working. I got in as a film editor. That was, I had done film editing uh, when I was younger uh, in college. Uh, and by the way, for many of your young listeners, you have to understand that back when I was in college, there were no, there really were no film classes. Uh, there were no film departments. I recently gave a lecture at Ball State um, University in Indiana. They have an entire building devoted to sound stages and technology and software and, and filmmaking and audio. There was nothing like that. So I had done mostly um, 
my work uh, on my own, just playing around with film. And I had a pretty good familiarity with film editing. So when I came out to Southern California, I managed to get a, a job as a working in a film editing department for an animation studio called Ruby Spears. Um, and uh, that got me into the union, uh, the Editor's Guild. Uh, and I was uh, I eventually made my way over to Hanna-Barbera, where uh, I was... I spent a couple of years working in the editing department, and I, I got lucky. I would sit, I would assemble the, the animated footage when it came back from overseas, and then I would call up the producers from upstairs, and they'd come down, and we'd sit, and we'd watch the footage, and they'd figure out what they needed to correct, which was usually a lot. I mean, some of the stuff came, came across and really looked like garbage. Um, and so I got to know all the producers while I was there. Um, eventually, I got laid off. And uh, I ended up on a TV show called Ripley's Believe It or Not. And oh, while wow. I, <laughs> oh. Yeah, I was working at Ripley's, on Ripley's. And again, I was an apprentice editor, so I was just in a room working on footage. Sure, sure. Um, and uh, while I was there, and that was, a, uh, that was uh, in, in Hollywood, and um, I lived in uh, uh, Burbank, which was, in, and I lived in the Burbank-Toluca Lake area, which was very close to Hanna-Barbera. So I would freelance I started freelance writing at Hanna-Barbera, and I sold so many scripts <clears throat> that my job after Ripley's, this is getting way complicated, I'm trying to simplify this, <clears throat> my job after Ripley's, I was working at Universal on a movie called DC Cab, again in the editorial department. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so while, while, I'm, I, while I'm at Universal now, um, I, uh, I started selling even more scripts to Hanna-Barbera, and finally Hanna-Barbera just said, well, look, you're selling so many scripts. You, you're selling more scripts than a lot of the people we have here on staff, so why don't you just come on staff? So I, I actually left the editorial DC cab before it was done, even though that's my first Hollywood credit. Um, and I understand that that's now playing on HBO, or a remastered version of it is playing on HBO. So if you want to see my first Hollywood credit, DC cab, HBO right now. Highly recommended. Um, <laughs> so anyway, now I'm on staff at Hanna-Barbera, and that's where my writing career begins. And that's circa, I'm going to say around 82, 83. Um, and um, the great thing about being on staff at H&B was you met everybody, and you worked on every show that was there. So I worked on Jetson, Smurfs. I worked on uh, Scooby-Doo. I worked on everything that was going on at Hanna-Barbera at the time. Um, then the head of pretty much TV production at Hanna-Barbera, Margaret Lesh, who's something of a legend herself, For sure. she left, um, she left H&B to take charge of a, of a new company called Marvel Productions, which had formerly been to Patty Freeling. And um, she brought my partner, Cynthia Friedlobe, and myself, because um, we were writing partners at that time, she brought us over to Marvel Productions. And Marvel Productions had virtually nothing to do with Marvel. It was mostly an animation um, outlet of, of Hasbro. So they were doing My Little Pony. Uh, they were doing uh, Transformers. They were That's the kind of stuff they were doing. Um, but they also were doing stuff with Jim Henson. They were doing Muppet Babies, which was a huge success. Yes. So um, Jim wanted to do a little... He had a new show that was on a network that nobody watched called HBO. You might have heard of it. <laughs> yeah. It's it's funny to think back to those early days of HBO and how uh, what an odd kind of singular entity it was. 
Yeah, it was really a very small thing, and you know nobody was watching much of anything that was on it. He had a show there that he had sold them called Fraggle Rock, and you might have heard of that. <laughs> um, and he was getting a big opportunity to turn Fraggle Rock into an animated show for NBC. And at that time, NBC was the number one network for children's programming in the country. So that was a huge deal. Uh, and somehow, uh, Cynthia and I ended up show running Fraggle Rock. So we were working directly with Jim. Uh, we were also working uh, with a fellow who was... Um, at that time, uh, uh, one of Jim's creative people by the name of Bill Prady. And Bill, um, who is a great guy and a good friend, Bill is now uh, one of the co-creators of the Big Bang Theory. Oh, wow. Uh, so, uh, and, and Bill also recently resurrected the Muppets for ABC. So Bill's done quite well. And, and it was a great time. I mean, there were just so many wonderfully creative people. Right down the hall from me at Marvel Productions, two, two offices down was... Chuck Lorre, who is the other co-creator of The Big Bang Theory, uh, as well as many other wonderful uh, sitcoms, and Chuck's become something of a legend. Anyway, so, you know, I mean, just this amazing collection of wonderfully creative people, and I'm working side-by-side with Jim Henson, and oh, by the way, down in the back, in the corner office, was this guy named Stan Lee. (laughs) What an amazing environment. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And I, I had worshipped Stan since I was a comic book reader from about the age of 15, 16, uh, when all the Marvel stuff began. I mean, I literally, you know, missed getting the first episode of Spider, the first issue of Spider-Man, that amazing fantasy issue. Uh, I probably missed that by just a few months, just by not paying attention to it being on the stands in, in you know, in the uh, subway. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, anyway, I was certainly thrilled to be in the same building as Stan, and and I befriended him, and we used to hang out and talk a lot and and lament the fact that we were not working on Marvel properties, that we were busy doing all this other goofy stuff. Um, well, and, real, real uh, quick. I want to yeah. divert. I want to divert to Fraggle Rock because yeah. it, it occurs to me, uh, you know, as a kid, I, I very much remember that cartoon, and always kind of wondering. Well, they had the, you know, they've got the the puppet based live action show on HBO, and you know, as a kid, I don't understand diversification and spreading across different markets and and the impact of getting it onto a major network versus being on HBO. And I always wondered, why are they doing this now? I totally understand uh, that was a huge deal to, to be able to get that brand into a broader audience. Yep. Uh, but also, uh, for you as a showrunner on that, the opportunity to tell stories that didn't rely on live-action elements – like to be able to sort of take the fraggles in a completely different direction from anything that the puppetry based show was able to do visually. Yeah, that was I think the thing that got Jim the most excited. One of the things that I that I'm frustrated by with that show is that everyone sort of treats the puppet show now like, Oh my god, we love the puppet show and then the animated show is sort of like, Oh, they did a cartoon. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but the reality was Jim was way more excited about the cartoon show because he could open up the world of the Fraggles, mm-hmm. and he could do, you know, we could do stories that that he could never do on the tight budget and the, and you know, uh, of the HBO show and the limitations of working with puppets. So we had Jim's full attention. I mean, I sat in many an office with Jim, and he was incredibly committed to the show and really wanted the show to be a huge success. 
Um, and uh, here's a tiny anecdote. Um, one of the people who was instrumental in killing the show, strangely enough, was newswoman Connie Chung. Oh, wow. <laughs> Do you want to hear that story? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So we have this we have this great show, and it really was a great show, animated show, and it's on NBC, which was the number one network. And every kid in America immediately tuned to NBC, you know, to watch all the new shows because that's where all the good stuff was. Mm-hmm. And we air our first episode, and it's a it's a number one show. It's a huge hit. And then the second episode, um, earlier that week or in the weeks prior, little baby Jessica had fallen down a well. I don't know if you're old oh, enough to remember yeah. this. Oh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> little baby Jessica had fallen down a well. And the, and the nation was riveted by whether or not little baby Jessica was going to get rescued, okay? So earlier that week, prior to our number two episode airing, baby Jessica had been rescued, I think so. Maybe she'd been rescued on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And it really was old news. I mean, she had been rescued. She was safe. She was in the hospital being checked over. Saturday morning... When our number two episode is going to air, um, and if you remember the theme song, it was dun, 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 dun. Okay, so that's the way the theme song yes, began. Yes, um, Cynthia and I are sitting in front of the TV, wa- ready to watch episode two, and it goes dun, dun, and it cuts. And it cuts because Connie Chung decided to do a live report on baby Jessica. Oh, no. Right at that moment, broke in right at that moment. And all she was talking about was that baby Jessica was fine. She was in the hospital. She was fine. Let's interview the doctor. How's baby Jessica doing? Well, baby Jessica's fine. Let's interview her parents. How's she doing? Well, she's fine. 20 minutes of that. (laughs) Oh, I do not, I do not have a personal memory of this, but. I would bet money I was sitting in front of the TV infuriated yeah. that my cartoons were being interrupted. Absolutely, at least on the West Coast. And so what happened was every child in America turned the channel because they were no longer watching cartoons. Right. They were watching boring, boring Connie Chung talking about boring baby Jessica. Yeah. Every, every kid turned the channel, and what did they discover? Well, there was this new show on CBS called Pee-wee's Playhouse. Oh, What? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh so the, the next week we we come into the office and Jeannie McCurdy was there she was Margaret's second in command and she says you know uh, Fraggle Rock took a huge dip in the ratings and we and, and, and no one knew why this was like a mystery to everyone okay the sure. network didn't know why and, and we said it's because Connie Chung inter- I mean it was like we were the only people watching we were the only people involved in the production of the show, right. who were actually watching that morning. And uh, we had to explain it to NBC, because apparently nobody in the NBC ratings department had, was paying any attention to the yeah. fact that Connie Chung had. So um, after that occurred, uh, kids discovered Pee-wee's Playhouse. And we were still a top ten show, but we were not the number one show in our time slot. And NBC was so used to having the number one show that they, you know, when the season rolled around, uh, in the end of the season rolled around, we were obviously, you know, one of the shows that they could eliminate. Right, perceived um, as not performing. 
perceived uh, as not performing. But uh, dear old Connie just completely destroyed that show, and it wow. was very unfortunate. So now it, it really irritates me that people sort of go, well, yeah, there was a cartoon show, but we don't care about that because we've, we've forgotten that. We're, we like the puppets. The puppets are cuter. You know? Yeah. That's, yeah. Well, that's and, the way it goes sometimes. And, and it is uh, – and this, this could be a whole other episode, but I feel like it is sort of a lack of regard for storytelling. Yeah, I mean, I think that we wrote some very good scripts on that show. Uh, there's one script that I still occasionally use as a sample uh, that I think was very good. Oh, by the way, we had wonderful voice talent on that show. Rob Paulson, who you oh, all yeah. know as, you know, Pinky of Pinky and the Brain uh, and one of the Ninja Turtles. And I mean, Rob was, was fantastic. Bob Bergen, who's now the voice of Porky Pig. Barbara Goodson, you all know her as Rita Repulsa. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Mona Marshall, um, God, who else? Pat Penny. We had a fantastic cast, voice cast on that show. Um, so, and we were all, when it ended, we all kind of looked at one another and thought, well, this wasn't meant to end. We, you know, we really felt like we had another three or four seasons of that show in us. Um, and, uh, and I would have loved to have continued. I did continue working for Jim Henson. I, I, I was one of the co-creators of a thing called Dog City that he did. Uh, and um, uh, I'd probably still be working for Jim today if he hadn't passed away. So anyway, that's that. So <laughs> that brings us to Marvel. That brings me to a guy named Stan Lee. Stan yes. and I became good friends. Um, fast forward to after Marvel and all kinds of other things that I work on. Uh, and a movie, I got a movie made and all that kind of stuff. Um, one day I got a phone call out of the clear blue from a guy named Stanley from Stan. And he says, um, we're putting together a Spider-Man show and we're having trouble negotiating with the, the guy that we wanted to hire as a showrunner. I, at that time was working on a PBS show, uh, a, a PBS puppet show. It was being uh, designed in, uh, by Kevin Clash, who, who did Elmo later. Later did Elmo. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so I was uh, I was working on a show, and Stan calls me up and he says they're having trouble hiring a guy that they wanted to hire, and he wanted to bring me into it. And I said, great, fine, you know, wonderful, do that. And um, then about a week later, he called me back and he said, no, 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 okay, we resolved the deal. I'm really sorry to get you, you oh. know, excited. And I said, that's all right, Stan. Don't worry about it. You know. Um, I have to tell you one other tiny story. I, sure, and if, sure. I'm running, if I'm running too long, just, just no, shut me up. No, no, absolutely. You've got all the time you want. <laughs> okay. Um, so I was at one of Stan's Christmas parties. This is maybe a year earlier. And um, people at the party, David Goyer was at the party, and uh, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Clerks. Kevin director. Smith. Kevin Smith is at the party. And uh, James Cameron was at this party. And James Cameron at that time was just at the beginning of talking about making a Spider-Man feature. So, oh, that's uh, right. I had completely forgotten about that. Yeah, he was going to do a Spider-Man movie, and that yeah. was going to be a big deal because he was he, he was James Cameron, just as he is today. He was James Cameron then. He was a big deal. Well, that was it was post Terminator Two, but prior to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man. I mean, it was in those years, right? right? Okay. Oh yeah, there wasn't going to be a Sam Raimi Spider-Man. Right, right. It was going to be yeah, Jim yeah, Cameron Spider-Man. Yeah. And and I happened to be at the party at, right at the moment. Margaret Lesh was there, um, and she was getting excited being around Jim and Stan. And somehow, right at that moment, they decided they were going to do a Spider-Man cartoon show right at that party. And, and I happened to be standing right there, and Margaret said, you know, we'll get somebody who's a really good writer like 
and she gestured toward me. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, well, that would certainly work, you know, but I I didn't believe for a second that that was the way it was going to go down. I just happened to be lucky to be standing there. And and the the amazing way that I can prove that is there actually was a picture taken of me at that party, and Jim Cameron is in the picture, and I'm in the picture. And, you know, so anyway, all right. So fast forward a year later, and everyone's forgotten about that. Yeah. Stan calls me up out of the clear blue, and he says, we're in trouble negotiating. I said, fine. Calls me a week later, says, we solved the negotiation. Sorry to get you worked up. I said, that's fine. I'm working on a show. No problem. Um, about six months later, some long stretch of time later, he called me up and he said, things aren't working out with uh, the person that, that we hired. And I want to I just want to bring you over here. And I said, fine, you know, because I, I don't remember what I was working on at that time. Oh, I do. I, I was still working on the uh, we had gone into production on the puppet show and that was being its own particular nightmare. Sure. So I, I was quite anxious to get off of it, really. <laughs> um, and um, uh, and so I said, fine, you know, that would be that would be great. Um, so he brought me over. First of all, I left the puppet show, incurring the wrath of everyone involved on the puppet show. The puppet show is called Puzzle Place, and those people still hate me to this day. But, um, you know, to, to walk away from a puppet show that nobody remembers in order to work on a show that has defined my career, I think I made the right career choice. Uh, yeah, and that's got to be, uh, creatively, that's got to be one of the most difficult things about working in entertainment is making those kinds of choices and deciding, you know, uh, where, where, to, where to cut bait, basically. Absolutely. I think that one of the um, things that I learned over the years was that I do have the right to make choices. Uh, and and when you don't, when you're constantly feeling like you've got to do what other people want you to do or tell you to do, um, that never works out. Yeah, you have to make you know the decision based on what you want to do. And there was no way I was going to turn down Stanley and Spider Man. I mean, it that was going to happen. So I right. left that show. I abandoned that show. I just walked away. And those people hate me to this day. And and my agent at that time hated me for doing it. Sure, but. Um, at any rate, uh, I came over, and um, uh, that's how I got on Spider-Man. That answers your question. Now, you see, the problem is you asked me one question, and I took up about 20 minutes. That That is not a problem at all. That is in no way a problem because we uh, we, we want the stories. So this, this well, is fantastic. Uh, so you're on Spider-Man. Now, mm-hmm. you know, as we all know, it was not the first Spider-Man cartoon. And right. You you were following not only the the stylish and cool '60s cartoon, uh, but also Spider Man and his Amazing Friends, which were very implanted in the public consciousness. Were mm-hmm. you were you at all? Was it daunting at all to be following those, or did you know we have a different kind of product? We have a different vision. This is going to be this is this is going to stand apart from what's come before. Yeah, it's a good question. I wasn't daunted at all by following those shows because I didn't think in retrospect that those shows were really all that good. Sure, sure. Um, I had loved the ABC show when I was a kid. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, and it was it was my world, that show. I, I, I couldn't believe that it was on. I couldn't believe that it got on the air the way that it did. Um, but before I started my show, I watched every Spider-Man show that I could get my hands on in those pre-internet days 
Um, and, uh, and, you know, they really, they didn't hold up very well. Um, the, the Bakshi show, the ABC show really wasn't very good, mm-hmm. um, by, by the standards of the early nineties, even, um, and pardon the street noise that you're hearing oh, right no, next to the fine. window. Um, the, uh, I never watched Spider-Man and, and his amazing friends. I watched a few episodes prior to starting my show. I thought it was cute, but it was a Saturday morning show. You know, mm-hmm. all that was missing was a, a dog and a, and a kid. And there might have even been a dog. And oh, a there kid. was. Miss, Miss Lion. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, it was a Saturday morning show, and it's the kind of thing that we would always joke about. You know, you had sure. a dog and a kid. And I knew I wasn't going to do that. I, I didn't want to do that. And then I watched a few other things. I watched the Japanese Spider-Man show. Uh, which I thought was cool, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, you know, that was sort of a pre-Power Rangers robot, you know, Spider-Man having a robot sh- kind of a thing. Right. Um, so I watched them all, and um, and that was very informative. But I knew that I was going to do the first real Spider-Man show. I knew that what I used to tell my writers was... Um, Imagine that Jim Cameron is going to make a movie and that he turns to us and says, "We, uh, you know, I want you to write that movie. That's the show that I want to do. So it, it, we didn't think, I didn't think in terms of TV. I didn't want anybody thinking that way. I wanted them thinking in terms of epic movie making. And the cool thing was that when we would get the shows in, you know, a year later when the animation started coming in and we would get the shows, um, we would screen them in, uh, we were in the New World building at that time, um, and, and they had a screening room there. And so everybody would crowd into the screening room, and the, the latest show would be screened on the big screen. And what was amazing was it looked like a movie. We were, you did not get any feeling like, oh, we're watching a TV show. <coughs> excuse me, we're watching a TV show and it's, you know, it's on a big screen. I mean, it literally looked like a big animated movie. And sometimes some of the episodes would um, be animated by, we could tell that they were animated by Tokyo Movie Shinsha's feature, feature unit, you know, the guys who did the movies. Mm-hmm. And so they, there would be movie quality animation. Venom 1 was movie quality animation. That I, I'll never forget seeing that on the big screen the first time. And but it just looked like a feature. So um, that was always the mandate. Um, now, what was daunting about doing the series was doing the series. Because <laughs> there was, by the time I came on, there was very little time. They had, they had fr- frittered away all these months. And um, as far as writing was concerned, nothing had been done. Um, and that was not my predecessor's fault, and I'm not going to mention his name. Sure. Um, but that was not his fault. Uh, what I what I soon discovered was that there was tremendous um, Machiavellian uh, uh, political, you know, crap going on in the background, and and people were giving him a very hard time. One person in particular was giving him a very hard time, uh, and I think that's what really made it impossible for him to get anything done. Um, I I look fairly benign, but I'm actually a pretty good political animal. And when I got over there, I very quickly figured out who was causing all the trouble. And I very quickly figured out how to counteract them. Uh, and, uh, and so um, I was able to get more done. But it was very difficult because 
basically, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of political fooling around going on and people were trying to get rid of me. So it's possible uh, without your intervention, this show might not have happened. By the time I got on the show, Fox did not want the show to happen. That was oh. made very clear. There was a woman named Karen Barnes. I'll never forget this. And she was uh, she came over to have a meeting with us from Fox. And I had known her. And she's, she is a very lovely woman. I had known her because she had formerly worked at Henson. Um, and, um, and when I met her at Henson, she was very nice and sweet and wonderful. She came over to have a meeting with us within my first few weeks at, uh, on Spider-Man and basically made it very clear that we were no longer liked by the network. Oh. <laughs> she was like the meanest human being. And, and I knew it was an act because I already knew that she was cool. Mm-hmm. But, but she came over and it was really, it, I, she was extraordinarily rude to us. I think Fox really did not want to have the show go on the air anymore. I think they were done. Wow. Um, and um, uh, I and this, this is this is uh, at this point X Men had already been a success. Yes, X Men had been a success, but there was so much political craziness going on on Spider Man, and uh, and people were very much not liking each other. Wow. And I think I think Fox and very very wisely Fox just wanted out of the contract. They just simply did not want the show on, to go on the air. And it was uh, the timing was such that if we didn't get a show going soon, it wasn't going to be able to go on the air. Right. You know, I mean we're we're we were a good 9 to 11 months ahead of airtime, but that's about what you need in order to get everything done and then get everything shipped and get everything animated and get it back in time. And we just barely made the, uh, the you know the uh, the deadline to get a show out the door in order for there to be a show on prior to Christmas. Now, why was that important? Because um, Avi Arad had a toy line uh, that was going to be launched for Christmas. Right, right. And if there wasn't a show on the air to get kids excited about Spider Man, because you have to remember at that time the thinking was you're selling these toys to kids who don't have a clue who Spider Man is. Yeah. And so if there isn't a show on the air, they're not going to care. I'll tell you what, so, that, that is one thing that drives me a little nuts about a lot of modern animation now. And, and I am a toy collector, but uh, the, the link between toys and animated shows drives me a little crazy because we've lost, <laughs> we've lost some great shows over the, the toy line issue. Yeah, I think that that um, even then, I mean, even at that moment, it was uh, it was a huge influence on on everything that I did or was supposed to do. Right. Um, you know, and and I don't think it's a healthy thing. And I think now that you have the corporations like Disney uh, leaning on everybody to you know creatively um, to make things the way that they need to be made in order to sell the toys, I think it really hurts the. Uh, the creative effort. I, I think one of the reasons why the '90s animation was so powerful was because the toys were important, but they were still something of an afterthought. Right. And now you get really the show really is designed to simply sell the toys, and so they don't want to offend anyone, and they don't want to do you know. It, it, I, I think it. You're right. It's a huge problem. But uh, to answer your question very specifically, what was daunting was simply the task of getting a show out the door when everybody was arguing, when the network didn't really necessarily want it anymore, and uh, when we um, had, you know, we just had very tight deadlines. And uh, somehow, my proudest achievement is that somehow I managed to get a show out the door. So you get the show on the air, mm-hmm. uh, 
and it is now now how to me in my mind uh the show was immediately fantastic and and successful because uh, my sort of three high water marks of 90s animation are Batman the animated series, uh the X-Men cartoon and Spider-Man the animated series. I mean those uh they took storytelling, they took uh and, and really it, it X-Men and Spider-Man did a whole new thing where you sit down and the series to a certain extent are like comic books where the story continues throughout the entirety of the run yep. uh which is something right. Uh, completely different and new and blew my mind that it would happen and, and really set a standard for future shows. Yes. Uh, because when they brought He-Man back, it, it also adopted that storytelling that something that happened a few episodes ago could have impact on a current episode, which was really unheard of. But you guys, how, how, how was the show received initially? Was it the smash hit that I remember? Yes. Okay, good. It was a huge hit. It was <laughs> it, it was a gigantic hit, and uh, and that's when everybody kind of relaxed a bit. But first, you have to understand that we did you know we did thirteen scripts without seeing a, an inch of film, um, because that's the way animation worked back in those days. You 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 basically worked blind. So you we did thirteen entire scripts, which was the, the entire first season, without seeing any footage whatsoever. When the footage started coming in and, and we started seeing the show and realizing that it looked spectacular, then we could all relax. But but those first 13 were very difficult because, you, you know, you really don't know what's going to work and whether it's all coming together the right way. Um, when it did come back, we pretty much knew we had a hit because it looked so good. It got on the air. It was a hit. And everybody breathed a sigh of relief. And suddenly, you know, we were the heroes a little bit. Uh, and, uh, and I got less pressure. Um, and by that time I had been picked up for the remainder of the 65. My contract was that I was going to do the first 13, but then I could be let go after that because oh. they wanted to, they wanted to give themselves that option. And I almost was let go. Um, but, um, when the show, uh, by that time I had been picked up for the remainder of the 65, uh, and, and everybody was very happy with the fact that it was a huge hit. The business of the continuing storyline, um, uh, first of all, I have to admit, I really didn't watch X-Men. Um, so I, I wasn't aware of how they were writing the show. Right, right. What I knew, um, and that has nothing to do with the show, I just wasn't, I actually wasn't watching a lot of uh, uh, cartoon shows back in those days, um, well, mostly because I was too busy working. Well, and that's, <laughs> I mean, uh, to a certain extent, I feel like that's got to be for the best because, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, if you can reference everything that's going on, uh, then it's it's good to know, uh, I guess, your medium. But to me, sometimes you can dilute your own creativity if if you are being influenced by other things. Yes, I think you're right. Um, I didn't really need to be watching any of the other shows. I did watch Batman. I watched some episodes of Batman and, you know, design wise, I thought it was pretty spectacular and it was just amazing. Uh, I was never very fond though of the beginning, middle end, beginning, middle end, beginning, middle end, you know, that sort of single episode kind of writing because what had turned me on as a comic book reader when I was 15, 16 was the continuing storyline. Um, and Spider-Man was my favorite comic book, excuse me, <clears throat> uh, 
um, Spider-Man was my favorite comic book. So um, I I knew what good Spider-Man writing was. I knew what it was that had made me excited about the series, and I wanted to recreate that for you know the kids um, of that moment. And so I knew that continuing storylines were important. I was specifically at first asked not to do them and then subsequently told not to do them. <laughs> but I, so but I did, did you, them. I did, did them anyway. How did you sneak that through or, or was I it just, just, I, I just did it. I just did it. That's, that's why I'm so beloved today by all of those people. Um, uh, no, I, you know, I, I had had such a rough beginning on the show with everybody, um, making it extraordinarily difficult for me to get the show done. And one person actively trying to get me fired actively. And if he's listening to this, he knows who he is (laughs) and it didn't work, you know, idiot. Um, (laughs) But he really, I mean, they really, really, it was a very difficult beginning so that by the time everything settled down, I no longer felt compelled to make anybody happy whatsoever, but myself. So it was, I'm going to do this my way or I'm going to go. And that's how it is. Absolutely. That's because, because, and it was a retaliation to the way that I had been treated at the beginning. Had I been treated with a certain amount of respect in the beginning, I would have been more respectful of everyone else's opinion. Sure. But I was treated so badly when I started the show. Um, and this has nothing to do with Stan because Stan, Stan's the one who gave me the opportunity. Stan supported me a hundred percent and Stan is the greatest human being on the planet and I love him dearly. I actually called him up about a month ago just to tell him that I loved him. Um, <laughs> I can see that, definitely. Which I do. I, Stan is great. Anyway, um, but no, but there were other people involved in the show, and they made life very difficult for me. And uh, uh, and so at that point, it was like, well, you know what? I'm just going to make a good show. And I know what a good show is, and all of you have proven to me that you don't know what a good show is, so I'm just going to do it my way. And And that, I will take full credit for that being the reason why the show is still popular today. Um, there are a lot of things I can't do in life, you know, and I'll be more than happy to admit to those, but the things that I can do or that I've done well, I'm very proud of, and I'll be the first person to, uh, um, to declare, uh, what they are. And one of them was that I delivered a really good show and, and people are still watching it today. So there you go. Absolutely. And, and you, you fully should, uh, cop to that. But (laughs) once the show was going, you did still have some fights because like, any animated program, uh, you had to deal with a certain amount of, I, I don't, I don't know that censorship is the word because it feels like kind of a heavy word to mm-hmm. use, but it was, you know, <clears throat> Spider-Man can't punch people. Uh, you, yeah, you let me, let me, ad- let me address that. <laughs> <laughs> there was an idiot who went around and gave interviews and started that whole rumor and the idiot was me. <laughs> um, so you know him well. <laughs> I, I know that idiot well. What happened was, you know, we would do these convention appearances, and after a while they get boring. And I started, I started um, spicing them up by reading BS and P notes, broadcast standards and practices notes. Sure. Uh, many of which have now lived on as legend. Whenever you hear this rumor about we had all this censorship and you hear, yeah, they wouldn't let him punch and they wouldn't let him, you know, he, he couldn't land on the roof and hurt pigeons. And Well, that all started, 
because I would read I would read the funniest BS and P notes that we would get and it would get a big laugh and everybody would laugh and everybody thought we were great. And, you know, and we go off to thunderous applause whenever when we would appear at the conventions. The problem is what I didn't anticipate was the um, the emergence of the Internet. Oh, yeah. And the fact that this stuff would live on. And then I also didn't anticipate the fact that nobody understood that everybody got BS and P notes, not just Spider-Man. Right, right. Um, so suddenly this, you know, because everyone latches onto what little bit of information they can get and it suddenly makes them an expert, the little bit of information, everybody everybody turns a headline into a story. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this little bit of information became this legend. Oh, that horrible. And you know, what I hate is when people go, you know, I like that show, but the thing the thing is, it really sucks because they had horrible censorship on that show. It, it, it sucks, you know. And you go, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The reality is, we had no, we had no different restrictions than any other show on TV at right. that time for right. children. Period. Um, this whole business of we we had censorship. I never had an argument with BSNP ever. Um, because they were nice people. There was this woman named, I think her name was Avery Evans. She's very nice. She'd call me up. She'd say, John, we have a problem with this. We have a problem with that. I go, fine. I'll I'll figure out a way around it. Never had an argument. Um, The thing that we get compared to is we get compared to Batman. You know, they say, well, they did this in Batman. They did that in Batman. Right. When I was working uh, years later over at Warner Brothers, I, I, I worked on a show called Static Shock. Oh, yeah. And I... I was working with Alan Burnett. Alan's a good friend of mine. In fact, I saw Batman versus Superman with Alan and Paul Dini, um, and, uh, and we had a fun time. Um, and I said to Alan, Alan, how did you get away with those things that you did in the, in, the, in the early season of Batman? And he said, John, once upon a time there was Camelot. <laughs> Basically what happened was they just kind of, you know, it, it was kind of the assault of the new. They were doing something for the first time, this, this kind of stylized action adventure. Fox was doing children's animation on Saturday morning for the first time. <clears throat> Warner Brothers, the company that was producing the show, was producing this kind of action adventure show for the very first time. So there was so much new going on. And by the way, that show had a very difficult birth, too, that um, some... Some of this stuff just slid by, okay? But eventually, <clears throat> excuse me, my allergy is kicking up today. Uh, it's this it's certainly the season for it. Yeah, but it's wonderful SoCal air. Um, <clears throat> eventually, what happened was they fell under the same restrictions that we did, and um, they used to argue more. I know that because Alan did tell me that. You know, they they do a lot more fighting for things. I never bothered. I mean, I, you know, I always figured I could get around it. I wasn't, I'm not that big on violence in front of children anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is, to set the record straight, we did not have any more censorship than anyone else on Saturday morning TV. Um, the, there were no arguments. There were no fights. I never felt limited in any way, shape, or form. People say... You know, well, no one died on your show. Well, no one dies on Saturday morning shows anyway. And, oh, by the way, we did kind of kill the Mary Jane clone, which was really kind of death, you know. Yeah, yeah, And they say, say, well, your show sucks because you did those laser (laughs) rifles instead of guns, so you suck. Well, the reality is, the reality is, we did do a gun. I did a whole episode about a gun. I did a whole episode about Robbie Robertson's son, Randy, having a gun. 
Um, and that was a gun episode. And we showed the gun and it was a real gun. And I remember calling up Avery and saying, I'm going to do this episode. It's about a gun. And we talked about it. And, you know, so none of it is true. We had no censorship on Spider-Man, the animated series. And, and that's exactly what I wanted to know is, is, you know, standards and practices. Did that affect the storytelling? And clearly it did not. And clearly not you guys were the- smart enough to work within the system, which to me, uh, you know, as, as, uh, as fun as it sounds to, you know, rail against the system, to me it's much more impressive when you can get out a, qu- a quality product working within the system. Well, thank you for realizing that, because it really I think that um, for the kids who were watching Spider-Man for the first time, they never noticed any of these things that supposedly uh, are detriments, you know, right, uh, right. No, the, no, like of course. the laser rifles. So we delivered the entertainment. And that's really what we were required to do was entertain everybody and, and tell really good stories. And, well, and it's still what you know, Spider-Man kind of has an advantage because it was uh, an action packed cinematic cartoon that didn't really need any in any of the stuff that maybe would wasn't wouldn't be wanted by the network or whatever. I mean, you've got Spider-Man. Come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and let's talk about like hits to the face, okay? Um Spider-Man has webs. He doesn't need to hit people in the yeah. face. Yeah. And and the reality is, I don't know that I can sleep at night if I if I present conflict conflict resolution to young people as, oh, here's how you resolve things. You hit somebody in the face. Sure. That's not who I am. So, you know, for him to web up somebody's mouth or web them up and make them dangle from a light, that, that's me anyway. I mean, that's the way I would handle that kind of thing if given a chance. And visually, so, that's more entertaining than seeing somebody getting hit in the face. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and uh, I know I really didn't even remember Spider-Man slugging it out with people that often anyway. Uh, in the comic book. I mean, in retrospect, now I can look back and I can see that he did. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it, I, I never felt like we had any restrictions whatsoever. Uh, and, and I think that's the biggest myth that I would love to squash <laughs> about the Spider-Man show is this idea that we had all this censorship. Well, consider it squashed here for our listeners, for sure. Thank you. Thank uh, you. So, as far as working on the show itself, you had a fantastic voice cast. Yes. How were, now were they in place when you got there, or were you part of that process? How, how did that go down? I was a little bit part of the process, but really, I was not involved. Uh, the person who was in charge of that was Bob Richardson. Bob Richardson was the quote-unquote supervising producer. Um, Bob's domain was anything having to do with the visual and the production. And my domain was writing. We we didn't really, you know, I didn't have much of a say in his world, nor did I want any because sure. I had my hand. I had my hands full. You had enough he on your have, plate. <laughs> yeah, I really did. I had enough on my plate. He didn't have as much of a say in my domain as he would have liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he would have liked to have had more control over the writing. But I was not hired on uh, as his employee. Right. So um, I was I was pretty much the person I worked with more directly was Avi. Avi Arad and uh, Avi and I, after a rocky beginning, we got along really well, um, and um, I had I ended up having a great deal of creative freedom as far as the writing was concerned. But um, I'm sorry, your initial question was I've lost I, I lost oh, your question just just about the because I've I've always been even as a kid before totally understanding the process of of making an animated show. 
Uh, I, I'm always fascinated by the voice talent. Um, oh, the casting. And, and, the and cast- by, you know, you ha- having one person doing multiple voices, and, and you don't, yeah. like, I, I, I could pick up on, you know, wait a minute, this person sounds like that person, but they're different characters. Like, uh, just that right. whole process of the voice casting is interesting yeah, a, that, to me. That, that's a union thing. You know, you can you can get somebody right. to do uh, a certain number of voices, and so you do because that's right, one right. way of saving money. Um, no, I wasn't terribly involved in the voice casting. The only decision that I remember having um, any kind of comment about was when we were choosing Spider-Man, and they did play for me. Um, I remember Billy Campbell came in, the Rocketeer came in uh, to record, and I was a big Rocketeer fan. Mm-hmm. I loved that movie. And so I was very excited to meet him, and, and I, thought his, uh, I thought his read was great. Um, and I was a bit starstruck, so I was, you know, I think I leaned a little more toward him. Um, fortunately, I wasn't the person who made the decision, because it ended up being Chris, and Chris was perfect. Mm-hmm. So um, had it been me, um, I, I don't know, I might have tried to influence it more in the direction of Billy Campbell. But, um, it, yeah, I had very little to do with it. Every once in a while during the course of the show, um, I would suggest somebody like uh, I'm a big Star Trek fan. So I I suggested Major Roger, uh, Major uh, Roddenberry. I, I suggested George Takei. Um, I suggested Nichelle Nichols. We we had all of them involved. Mm-hmm. Um, the one I really wanted to get for the Beyonder was Patrick McGowan because I'm a huge Patrick McGowan oh, fan. Oh, Wow. And not because of the prisoner. Uh, I'm a McGowan fan because of of, of uh, Secret Agent of Danger Man. Oh, okay. Uh, Mine's purely because of the prisoner. I, I stayed up late Saturday nights to watch that on PBS when I was young. I, I adored that. Yeah, show. it's a great show. I mean, I, I loved it too. I, I am old enough to have watched it when it first aired, and uh, and I loved it. But I had already been a fan of his as a result of John Drake and and uh, Danger Man. Yeah. So. Um, I really wanted him to do the voice of the Beyonder, and probably one of my biggest moments in life was when he and I had a phone conversation uh, about, you know, trying to get him to come and do the Beyonder. And uh, he was in the middle at that time of writing a prisoner movie, and that was the only um, reason that he didn't do it was he was, you know, he was busy writing at that time, and and uh, but he was very complimentary. He was a very nice man. Uh, he told me I had a great voice, which I cherish to this day. <laughs> and um, that was the only he was the only guy we didn't get that I wanted. But everybody else, you know, if I suggested someone, they usually try to get them and they usually did get them. So I got to meet Majel and I, I became very good friends with Majel and uh, and I got to work with George and, and I'm currently doing something with Michelle right now. So she she became a, a good friend. And yeah, that was, you know. That was my little bit of input to the casting. Well, I remember yeah. my friend Pat Jankowitz came up to me one day. He's an author, and he came up to me, and he said, so what was it like working with Carrie Ann Moss? And I looked at him, and I said, did I work with Carrie Ann Moss? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah, she was an episode, blah, 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 blah. So I guess I worked with Carrie Ann Moss. Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah. All of the actors were wonderful. There were only two actors who were a pain in the ass, um, one of whom I won't name. The other one is, is, is now deceased. Um, Nell Carter. <laughs> oh, wow. It was, right, it was right in the middle of the OJ trial. And it's funny, I was just telling uh, Cynthia this story last night. Somebody, I think it, it might have been Cynthia. Um, it was right in the middle of the OJ trial. And uh, Nell Carter came in one day and she was pissed. Sure. <laughs> she sure. was so angry. 
And I think she was angry at every man on the planet. And I happened to be the first man that she laid eyes oh, on. No. And she just started ranting and raving. I don't think I said two words to her. I think I maybe said, hi, no, you know, I didn't even get the Nell out. Right, right. And she just lit into me like nobody's business. It was oh, as if goodness. I had, it was like I had killed her dog or something. Ugh. And I have no idea to this day what the hell that was all about. But um, people have asked me, why didn't you use Glory Grant more? You know, that was the <laughs> character that Nell voiced. There you go. And, you know, what what can I say? Um, An- another question answered here <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> it's, when, when, never piss off the writer. I, you know, he, he may seem like the most insignificant person on the set, but you do not... He controls your character, especially in a series. You don't want to piss off. <laughs> well, the I mean, the, I thought enough of that. There was an amazing cast of people came through that show. Uh, Christopher Barnes is is the guy. I mean, he's one of those guys that he's the voice you once you hear him as Spidey. Yeah, he's the voice you hear in your head when you're reading the comics or whatever. From there on out, I mean, to this he, day, he still is. Chris is one of the best voice actors, if not the best voice voice actor I've ever worked with. He is absolutely brilliant. Um, like you know, as I said, I would have maybe made the mistake of not casting Chris because I didn't know how at that time how brilliant he was. Sure. But I can't imagine anyone else being Spider Man now. He's also an, an extremely good friend. I've known him for a good number of years. He's a great guy. Really smart. Um, really loyal. Uh, he's been a hundred percent behind War of the Rocket Men, which I'm, you know, tremendously appreciative of. Um, but he is just the best, absolutely the best. So thank God I wasn't in charge of casting. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it m- might not have gone that way, but but he's um, he is Spider Man as far as I'm concerned. Um, so. Fantastic cast, fantastic stories. Uh, real quick, and I, I don't want to keep you too terribly much longer, but uh, we've got to talk a little bit about story selection because you guys covered an amazing amount of ground over four years. I mean, you you had uh, thirty year, thirty plus years. Well, right around thirty years of Spider Man comics to draw from, and you covered so much ground. How did you determine which stories uh, to tell? You know, I'm not a champion, a championship skier. I'm not a uh, an Olympic diver. Um, I'm not terribly good at math. But one thing I am good at is story. Uh, and I don't know where that comes from. Um, but I'm pretty good at putting together uh, story arcs that are engrossing and characters that you want to, um, you know, whose, whose stories you want to follow. So where it comes from, I don't know. That's my gift. You know, there are a lot of things on this, in this world that I can't do. Um, but I, I happen to be pretty good at story. Um, basically they gave me 65 half hours and said, go do something great and sell toys. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And so I ignored the last part, and I, and I thought, <laughs> let me just tap into what I got excited about with this character and try to bring that to, um, as I said earlier, try to bring that to a new generation. Uh, there were certain villains that were just, you know, the, the seminal villains, the villains that you absolutely had to have, the Green Goblin, the Green Goblin Kingpin, um, you know, I mean, there, 
there were just certain people I knew, I, characters that I knew I wanted to have in the show. Right. Um, there were other characters that were forced on me, the Spider Slayers. I mean, that, I had no memory of them in the comics, um, and uh, I really had to use them because of the toy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, as I went along, um, especially after the first 13, the first 13 I kind of had to do, you know, single story, single story, single story, and then we did a two-parter and then yeah, another single story. But the second season where the first the show was now on the air and, and Avi kind of said, you know, I'm not going to be as involved with the story as much. So go do your thing. Uh, that was just the greatest toy. You know, what what was the uh, quote by Orson Welles that Hollywood was the greatest set of toy trains that was ever given to a human being to play with? Yes. Yes. Giving me 65 half hours of television time with my favorite superhero character was just the greatest toy uh toy train set that i could have ever been given i i i just knew where i wanted to go and how i wanted to get there there were certain issues you know if you really examine the show and you look at the the corresponding comic books we really didn't do the comic book the greatest the greatest compliment you could ever pay me is to say it was just like the comic book because in fact the show really wasn't like the comic book you know stories got changed fairly radically uh villains motivations got changed pretty radically spider-man's interaction with them got changed but the feeling was there and that was what i was going for there were a few comics um that i did want to transform pretty much the the way they were written turning point was one uh, I was extremely thrilled to be able to do Turning Point exactly as it was written in the comic book. Uh, except, of course, the death of, um, of um, Gwen Stacy. Right, right. Um, but, the, you know, seeing that on the screen and thinking as a kid, boy, I'd love to see this get animated someday. And then being the person that actually was responsible or at least partially responsible for it getting animated. That was really a dream come true. You don't you don't. it doesn't get any better than that. So um, I think the stories came from knowing the character, um, from understanding where I wanted to go dramatically. I never thought of, about writing down for kids, so that was not even an issue. It was really, I was really making the show for myself in a way, uh, for the kid in me. Well, and that's – I mean, honestly to me, those are the shows that, that stuck with me. You know, I've, there are certain animated shows that – I have a fondness for and that I love just because of the nostalgia, but the shows that stand out are the ones that aren't dumbed down, that aren't written at kids, that tell stories. Because kids, you know, as a kid, you pick up on what's important to you, but then as you get older, things resonate differently, and that's why things like Spider-Man, the animated series, continue to be great is because, you know, that you don't outgrow them. You you evolve... your understanding of them, I guess. Uh, that makes me very proud because that was very important to me. I really did not want this show to ever grow old. And um, I, I told very sophisticated stories in a way that I thought kids would also enjoy. Um, I had a lot of help. I had great writers. Uh, I'm going to mention a few of them. Jim Krieg, who's now currently writing every major cool thing going on at Warner Brothers. Uh, <laughs> Mark Hoffmeyer. Um, who is now Mr. Lego, everything that comes out of Lego, Mark is responsible for. Um, uh, he's doing this Nexus Knights thing that's on right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Stan Berkowitz, who's won, I think, multiple Emmys, because right after he did Spider-Man, he went over to Warner Brothers and was working with 
Allen on Batman and Superman and Stan Stan's good. You know, these were my staff writers. These are the guys that I hired. And um, uh, I think we're going to get a fire engine going by. My office is right next to a window. Oh, no, no problem. We, we <laughs> I, don't I, mind I, a, a little background <laughs> color on the show. I live right across the street from Warner Brothers, but to, just to give people a geographical location. So I'm, I'm, it's a it's a fairly uh, busy Main Street. Um, anyway, um, so Stan, I mentioned um, Ernie Altbacker, who's now a, 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 you know Ernie. Ernie still does a lot of uh, TV writing, but he's also a highly respected author of young adult novels. Um, these were my guys. You know, I hired them. In in the case of a few of them, at least, it was their first gig in animation stan it was his first gig in animation jim it was his first gig professionally period uh and the same with ernie um and uh, mark had been in children's television but only he had only really just gotten started so um that was my joy was going and, and being with those guys every day um all the other political bullshit pardon my language no, all the no other, worries <laughs> all the other political stuff just, you know, that I, that I dealt with. And then I would get together with the guys and we would uh, we would have fun. Um, but um, it was great. I mean, you know, giving me 65 half hours and saying, go do this wonderful thing was just tremendous. And I think that what I see when I look at the show <clears throat> and there are some episodes I actually haven't seen in close to 20 years, but I see my enthusiasm for what I was doing. Um, there are some episodes where I, I, I'm amazed at how obviously excited I was to be telling the story. You know, I can, I can feel it. I can see it in the writing. Um, and, uh, and that's great because you don't get those opportunities very often. And, and it was, uh, the greatest opportunity for that, I think, in my life. Well, it, you, you certainly, uh, left a huge footprint in, in the legend of Spider-Man and, and pop culture in general. Well, thank you. Thank you. That makes me feel good. Before we move on, because uh, I want to wrap up with War of the Rocket Men, real mm-hmm. quick, given, given the proximity, have you seen Civil War yet? No. <clears throat> I always, <clears throat> excuse me, I always wait. Um, in the case of Batman versus Superman, I did see it when it opened because, uh, I'm, oh, by the way, <laughs> I'm writing a comic book for DC right now. Oh, I don't know what if do you, you know that or not. No, no, no. What are you writing? I'm, <laughs> I'm writing Cyborg. Um, my first issue of Cyborg will probably hit the stands in August. Oh, so this, uh, this is the Rebirth <laughs> Cyborg. Very cool. This is Rebirth. I am, I am, I am reborn. I am reborn right now as the writer of, uh, <laughs> Of Cyborg. I'm a comic book writer. Um, I'm handling this very, very important character. I couldn't be happier. So talk about canvases and talk about opportunities. Yeah. You know, I mean, basically, I've now got this comic book. I've got this major character who's going to be a part of the Justice League and, you know, on, in the movies and everything and is slated to have his own movie somewhere down the line. Um, and, and, you know, and I'm doing it again. I'm doing this whole thing of creating a world and creating characters and so uh, Cyborg's being reborn. I'm being reborn. Um, uh, that's that's the most exciting thing that's going on right at well, this moment. I mean, that's extremely exciting. Because I mean, how Cyborg, uh, who's always been a sentimental favorite of mine, uh, mm-hmm. basically because of his superpowers figure way back in the 80s uh, that had the awesome chrome metal on it, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, because of that figure, I have always followed Cyborg, and it thrilled me when they kind of called him up to be part of Justice League. Yes. Um, yes. And now with you know that it it wasn't a fluke. It's not something that's fallen by the wayside. He is part of the Justice League and going forward with the the DC Rebirth movement, which we're actually doing an episode on in a couple of weeks here. Uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, we we're gonna get get down to talking about the comics and what DC is doing. But that's that's incredibly cool that you're gonna be guiding Cyborg's uh, path. I'm I'm working with Jeff Johns and uh, my editor is Brian Cunningham and um, uh, Jeff has made it very clear to me that Cyborg is an extremely important character to him. Um, I uh, I feel extremely welcomed and appreciated. Unlike when I started working on Spider Man, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's the exact opposite. These guys. These guys are great. They're just great. And, and, uh, um, they did me the big favor of moving after, after decades of being in New York. DC did me the big favor of not only moving to Southern California, but they're only five minutes away from where I live. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> so if anyone wants to have a meeting with me, they call me up. I'm there in five minutes. I oh, love that's it. wonderful. Um, but it's, it's great. It's, it's being a wonderful experience. Um, so yeah, so that's, I, I'm so glad that that came up. Uh, that I thought of that because I would have kicked myself if I hadn't mentioned it. So I want everybody that's a fan of Spider-Man, the animated series to buy the first issue, at least of cyborg. I think we're going to start the numbering again with issue zero mm-hmm. and that'll be happening in August. And that's me. Yeah. Um, I think, it, I think it kicks off with a rebirth issue that kind of lays down where each character is in the new yes. continuity and then goes into the number one and onto the ongoing series. Yes, yes, and I've created a new villain for uh, for that issue zero. Um, so uh, you know, hopefully, I'll be able to reclaim some of the magic of what I did when I did Spider Man. I'm being very excited and uh, and enthusiastic. Now, what was your question <laughs> prior to mentioning Cyborg? Oh well, no, we 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 definitely went off in a in a great direction on that one because I mean we we all know your storytelling pedigree at this point so I think uh certainly amongst our listeners you you've sold some issues of Cyborg already uh everybody great. go to your local comic book shop and put Cyborg on your pull list yeah uh, starting august uh, you would ask me about war of the rocket men either uh, well yeah we we've got to we've got to get to war of the rocket men okay tell me how, because as i said uh at the top of the show we all know if you're a nerd in any way, if you follow cinema in any way, you know the Rocket Man. You know that look. You know that iconic, uh, the the helmet and the jetpack. I mean that that's just it's. I got chills watching the video <laughs> when some of the art that you had commissioned for it yeah. came up. I mean it's beautiful stuff, and to see you've got a beautiful. Uh, the the story bit with I believe that's Chris doing the voiceover in that is that yep. correct? That was uh, Chris Barnes. Yeah, and it's uh, you guys really do need to go watch this video. But sitting there and he's he's a pilot, uh, mm-hmm. and these Nazi rocket men. I mean, when they popped up on the screen, I was like, oh, what's going on? What is this? <laughs> I mean, it really excited me. So obviously, this excites you as well. Tell me how you decided for this to be the project that you wanted to, to put yourself into? 
It's exactly the same thing that um, I'm still seeking the same experience I had when I did Spider-Man, which is to do something that just personally excites me to no end. Um, I have always loved the Rocketman character. I find that most fans do, that there's just something about that character that is the epitome of retro serial pulp action adventure cool yes it all comes together with the rocket man well when you go to to any anybody that's doing art now like pop art or comic book art or whatever almost anybody has at least one drawing of a rocket man in their portfolio absolutely there's just something that grabs us all and i thought well that's what i want to do i want to do the thing that grabs me still gets me excited um, and and uh, in my career, you know, at this point in my life, I'm not I'm not climbing any ladders. I'm not trying to get to do anything. I've I've done pretty well, so I can kind of pick and choose what I want to do. Um, and about a year and a half ago, as I said, when I did the anniversary panel with the cast, and we all came together and said, "Let's do something," I thought, "Well, what do I really want to do?" What idea have I loved all these years that I, you know, that, that I have not lost any passion for? And the Rocket Man occurred to me, and I thought, well, you know, um, Dave Stevens certainly uh, did pretty well when he reinvented it as the Rocketeer. So let me create a Rocket Man kind of character um, and, and play around with it. You know, what would I do? I, first of all, I wanted it to be period, because I think that the good guys and the bad guys were very clearly delineated in the 1940s, and that yes. makes it very easy for everyone to understand what's going on. Yes. <clears throat> and um, and I had this great cast. I knew I was going to have Chris in the lead, and I knew that I was going to have Saratoga and Jennifer. And So it was easy for me to figure out who I wanted everyone to be. Um, Ed Asner, obviously, he's going to be the publisher of a pulp magazine that Chris Barnes's character is going to end up working uh, for. And um, it's going to it's a really intriguing story. I mean, you know, if there's any area where the, the actual Rocket Man character in the Republic serials fell down a little bit is that you don't really care about the guy in the mask. Right. All you care about is what happens when he puts on the mask. Well, you know? that's and, and, that's one of the things that most impressed me with the presentation was that aspirational aspect when he says, no matter what it took, I was going to become a Rocket Man. Yeah, that to me was almost the the tagline for it. I just I love that. <laughs> well, it's it's uh, it's exciting to create a personality that goes with that character and um, and to give him certain strengths and certain weaknesses and give him a team to work with. Uh, I will tell you one thing. I won't tell you who she is, but the lead uh, the leader of the Rocket Men is actually a woman. I and, you know I almost wondered because in the illustration she's yeah. at the forefront of yeah. at least one possibly a couple of illustrations I noticed that that's very cool yeah, yeah you can definitely tell in the in the uh, the curvature of the, uh, of the of the outfit yes um, <laughs> she's she's a really cool character um, it, it's going to be a great I mean if we if we get to do it as a series it's going to be a great series. As I said, right now I'm putting together the presentation. I've got artwork by three really great artists. Um, Des Taylor, who is now rapidly becoming a superstar in well, art. I, uh, probably a year, maybe more ago, uh, the the kind of the group I run in on Facebook, we were all sharing his retro stuff. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, that's how I discovered him. I discovered him online, and I thought, crap, I, I have to meet this guy. <laughs> i got to get a hold because, of this guy. <laughs> yeah, he's fantastic. And so I, I literally messaged him on Facebook, and I said, I've got this idea. I want to do this, blah, blah, blah. And he got back to me and said, I love the idea. Um, and then it just so happened that he was coming to San Diego because Des is London-based. Right. So it just so happened that he was coming to San Diego for Comic-Con, and I said, well, we've got to meet up, and we actually found a little quiet restaurant off to the side, out in the streets, and we sat down and had a wonderful lunch, and, and uh, we bonded. I really like this guy, just as a human being. Sure. I think Des is really just a wonderful guy, um, and a brilliant artist, so mm -hmm. I, I got Des. Um, now, I had already been working with another great artist who you might not be familiar with. His name is Frank Grau. And Frank is fantastic. I've been using him for all of my development that I do. I do a lot of development on my own where I create my own ideas and mm -hmm. go out and, and try to sell them. Um, and Frank is always my go-to artist. And so Frank has done some amazing artwork for me. Um, and then uh, Del Barris. I'm, I, I've gotten a few drawings from him. Del did a lot of the promotional artwork for Spider-Man the Animated Series. That's how I met Del. Um, and Del is a really great comic book artist as well. So I've got these three great artists. I'm going to put them to work. That's what I'm funding. I'm funding them as well as the, the voice cast. I'm going to bring the voice cast into the studio. Um, we have great perks. Um, you're gonna, you, can, you can own an actual drawing from Spider-Man the Animated Series, which is extraordinarily rare mm -hmm. uh, because I don't think any of that, much of that material ever ended up in America. But I got a, a, a chunk of it. I got a, a whole bunch of actual drawings from Spider-Man the Animated Series. I've got one sequence where Peter rips off his mask. Oh, wow. And, and so you can own that drawing, one of those drawings. Um, I've got, um, good grief, autographed storyboards. So if there's an episode of Spider-Man that you like and you'd like to have me autograph a storyboard and, and the script, um, I've got that. I've got, uh, you have an opportunity, if you've got really big bucks, you have an opportunity to come and watch us record um, but here's here's the best deal, and here's why everybody should donate. For $25, you will get um, a digital PDF of of um, the Bible for War of the Rocket Men. You will get a digital PDF of a new script that I've written called Peter Finds Mary Jane. Yes, that's the one that caught my <laughs> eye. <laughs> I've... I've I always knew what I was going to do if we had picked up and done a first, uh, you know, another season of Spider-Man, and I had the whole thing mapped out. And um, I even talked about it in interviews. Uh, I'm going to um, make it available now as a script, so it's going to be exactly the same as it would have been if I had written it for the series. Um, it's going to be long, so it's not a 22-minute episode. It would be. It's more like an hour episode. Uh, and that's how that's how we like our Spider-Man the animated series. <laughs> yeah, it's long and complicated and involved, yes. and I think it's 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 really kind of cool. Um, I'm going to make that available, uh, um, you know, and also a little. It, it comes with a little autobiographical um, reminiscence about working on the show and and uh, how I would have ended it. Um, that you can get digitally. Uh, again, this is all for twenty five dollars. So if you give us a twenty five dollar donation. You get the PDF of the Bible. You get the PDF of, of uh, Peter Finds Mary Jane. So you can finally put that to rest in your head. <laughs> um, and this is what I think is the best thing, quite frankly. Even beyond that, I've got – I recently realized that I've got about three hours of footage of us in the recording studio. Oh, recording. wow. Recording. Yeah. 
I, and you know what happened was I shopped this stuff. I was one of those people who was an early adopter of, uh, of home, uh, you know, these little portable, at that time, 8-millimeter video home cameras. Right. Uh, I shot a ton of footage. I had forgotten. I shopped this stuff, and then I put it away, and I never looked at it. And about six months ago, I pulled it out, and I started looking at it, and I have entire voice sessions I have the last session that we did with Stan and Joan Lee when they came in, and um, um, uh, Brian, uh, oh, Uncle Ben, God, I can't think of his name right at the moment, um, uh, Family Affair, Uncle, he, he did the voice of Uncle Ben, anyway, he's there, um, we've got all these wonderful people who are no longer with us, like Roscoe Lee Brown, I've got him on video, I've got Linda Gary, who was the original voice of Aunt May, I've got all this footage. I've also got uh, original deliveries, you know, the, the, the footage as it came over directly from overseas with a lot of the dialogue that got changed. You know, I, I, I had the good fortune of having a superhero whose mouth was covered. Right, right. So I could change his dialogue right up till the very end, uh, you know, right, right up until airtime, quite frankly, um, or about a week before we went on the air. So a lot of the original delivery of the animation contains the original dialogue. Um, I'm going to create a film festival. It's going to run hours. Um, and I'm just going to put a lot of this stuff up only for people who have donated. And, and again, this is part of the $25 tier. Right, right. So, you know, you don't have to spend a huge amount of money. But if you donate $25, you're going to get all of this stuff. Um, and there's some other things that I'm not even thinking about that are going to come on that level as well. Oh, we're going to have a, a certificate designed by Frank Grau uh, that's going to make you a part of the uh, an official part of the Rocket Men. That's that's also suitable for framing. Um, so it's your it's your uh, membership to the uh, to the Rocket Man Squad. Well, the, I mean, uh, the rewards alone are for sure worth it. But what I like and, and what makes this a little different is that you're just looking to fund basically the pitch or the proposal that is uh, correct so that you can shop it around and get a series made you're not looking to fund the entire series uh, no because that would be impossible to right, do it right. you know, yeah yeah to, to raise enough money to do it with the quality that i want we would have to have a lot of money millions of dollars and obviously there's no way you can do that crowdfunding so um i'm just putting together a presentation and basically for spider-man fans it's an opportunity to get a lot of the stuff that i've kept in storage for 20 years um, autographed comic books and all this kind of stuff. So what can I say? People, everyone who's a Spider-Man fan should donate to this because it's, it's going to bring back something that you love in a, in a new and, and, you know, exciting form. Well, and, and from, from my standpoint as a fan, it's going to give you an unprecedented look into something that you love because I mean, this, this, this is amazing. I mean, short of, short of the most comprehensive shout factory Blu-ray you've ever seen, <laughs> you're not going to get to see this kind of thing ever. No, this is this material. I'm going to make it available. Now it's going to go away. Um, I'm amazed that I had it really when I delved into the video <laughs> material, I was stunned because I had just completely forgotten that I had shot it. Uh, so um, this is, uh, for, as far as I'm concerned, that's worth the $25 donation in and of itself. For sure. Uh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So where can we go to donate our 25 or more dollars uh, to this project? Well, the 
actual it's on indiegogo so if you look for indiegogo um and why is it on indiegogo well no matter what you donate i'm going to get it so it's none of the kickstarter foolishness where if i don't hit a certain level it all goes away right right um uh so that's why it's on indiegogo um the address on indiegogo is igg dot me forward slash at forward slash war of the rocket men okay now the easier one to remember though is www.waroftherocketmen.com if you go there there's a button that will take you right to the uh, right to the indiegogo page so that's www.waroftherocketmen.com also if you are a spider-man fan I have a Facebook page, which is really where all the most activity, my online activity, is uh, centered. I'm there. I'm on there every day. Yeah, we've got I, to put that over because that's yeah. how this interview happened. <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm, I'm. I love Facebook. I'm not a Twitter guy. I have a Twitter account, but I only visit it once every couple of days. Quite I, I frankly, don't, I don't understand Twitter. I don't. I, don't <laughs> I find it tremendously confusing. Uh, yeah. And as you can tell, I can't say anything in a short amount of time. <laughs> right. Yeah, 120 <laughs> characters, not enough. Not going to work for me. No. So um, the Facebook page where I am every day is www.facebook.com forward slash making of Spider-Man the Animated Series. All one word, no spaces making of Spider-Man the Animated Series. Um, that's where I am every day. And if you want to ask me dumb questions like, how come there isn't a Spider-Man DVD? That sucks. Well, you can ask me that question for the umpteenth time. Uh, and by the way, the answer to that is that I have no control over whether or not there is a Spider-Man DVD, a DVD of the entire series. Disney owns it. I'm sure it's very low on their priority of, of things to do in life. Um, well, and, and it's, uh, it's another one of those things where it's like Disney and Sony and Fox and whoever else. I mean, yeah. I, it's not a simple like, yeah, let's put this out. No, and I actually heard recently one that I hadn't heard before, which was that um, the Spider-Man theme is maybe an issue because Joe Perry, I guess, owns certain rights to oh. that. You know, the theme to our series, and and maybe that's one of the reasons why it hasn't come out. Oh, I have no gosh. idea. Yeah, I have no idea why it hasn't come out. I have this really bad luck thing when it comes to dvds not coming out i made a, a a movie which is kind of a little bit of a cult comedy now it's called a class act with uh, kid and play the rap duo kid and play oh wow yeah 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 I, I wrote that and um uh i for some odd reason every kid and play movie came out on dvd and for Except years that. that movie never came out <laughs> Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> and then finally, this, you know, Warner's has got this video on demand company called Warner Archive, and somebody must have tripped over it, you know, while they were going through the vault. And they went, hey, what's this? Well, maybe we'll make, maybe we'll put this on the list. And, and so now it is available on DVD, but it never got a major DVD release. I am the most un DVD released person I think there is on the planet. It's like there's a conspiracy against it oh. uh, or against me. <laughs> But so there you go. Uh, I have no idea about the DVD, but you can ask all kinds of questions like that. You can ask me again about uh, uh, censorship because I know that's never going to go away. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of what other questions I get. Oh, my other favorite questions that I get are so like um, if 
if the Sandman had been on your show, what would he have done? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. <laughs> because he, he wasn't on right. the show. <laughs> he wasn't, so I haven't thought about it. But but what the hell? You know, I'll answer I'll answer whatever question. Just uh, just be sure to donate. If you can ask me the same questions over and over again, at least donate to War of the Rocket Men. That's right, absolutely. Well John, yeah. thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk to me and to Needless Things. And uh, we will be checking out War of the Rocket Men. And definitely watch that video, guys. Seriously. It, it's a really cool video, and it'll get you pumped up for War of the Rocket Men. Well, Phantom, thank you for um, just having me on and letting me talk for this long amount of time and for being a great interviewer. Oh, thanks, uh, man. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed this, and uh, I, I hope everyone has an extraordinarily good day. Okay? Absolutely. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. That was awesome. I I was so excited by that interview because, you know, one, Spider-Man the Animated Series is huge. I mean, that is a cornerstone of Spider-Man mythology. And two, John was just such a nice guy. Uh, he had he had some great stories. He was fun to talk to. Definitely uh, want to have him back on in the future. And please go check out War of the Rocket Men. Uh, it, it just I, I can't say this enough, and I think I've said it three times already. Go watch the video. It's so cool. Uh, I also want to give credit to the Mystery Men. They provide our interstitial music, that cool, awesome, exciting surf rock that you guys hear in most of our episodes, provided by themysterymenofsurf.com. And then, of course, there is the music you are hearing right now underneath my speaking and our intro music by Les Sexoflex, uh, featuring my good friend and business partner and co-creator of the Dirty Dirty Con Con Game Game Show show, Miss Lady Flex. Go to lesexoflex.com and download some awesome music. So, what else is going on? I don't know. I got nothing to talk about. I'm going to put over patreon.com slash phantom troublemaker. Hey, I got it right that time. Good for me. And uh, go check that out. See if you want to support the cause. There are lots of goodies. I have two Needless Things mystery boxes going out for the month of May. If you sign up to contribute $30 or more a month, I will make it three, four, five, up to, what did I put a limit on those? I think 10 maybe? I think I'm willing to do 10 mystery boxes, uh, and I can maintain that for like a year or so, and then I'll run out of stuff. But I've got tons of amazing tchotchke laying around the Phantom Zone from years of being a nerd, reporting on nerd things. I would like to send it to you. I'm sending out movies, music, all the stuff we talk about. Check it out. I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Needless Things podcast. You're the best. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vic's employee. And of course, it's at needlessthingssite.com. Love you. Mean it. Uh-huh.